And we'll next hear argument in Advanced Integrative, Integrative Medical Science Institute uh, versus Garland. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, may it please the court. Um, my name is Matthew Zorn. I represent petitioners. I've divided uh, three minutes of my time to the state of Washington, um, and I'm going to reserve two minutes for rebuttal. Okay, uh, so you want to stop with five minutes left on the clock, so please watch the clock. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, petitioners wrote to the agency on January 15th, uh, seeking instructions on how DEA would accommodate requests um, under the right to try. Uh, the right to try is a... Uh, counsel, isn't that the beginning and the end of this case? They wrote seeking instructions on how to proceed. I totally agree with you. So if they sought instructions, how can a response to a request for instructions ever be a final order? And, and, and that's, a, that's a great question, Your Honor. And I think it's because of the specific response in this case. And that response was, there is no process. If they had identified a process, we would have had to use that process. But because the agency said, there is nothing for you to use, we have nowhere to go. So if I may- Wait, I, don't, I didn't see that they said that. I thought they said you could apply as a researcher and they encouraged you to do so. And then they would determine uh, whether, whether they would give you the uh, you know, exemption as a researcher. Uh, that's true, but applying as a researcher would not give us adequate relief um, under the right to try. But, and, and but, but, but counsel, you weren't seeking relief. When you wrote to the agency, you were seeking guidance. We seek your guidance. How ought we to proceed? We look forward to your guidance. Uh, please advise us. Uh, it, it, there's nothing about your letter that suggests to me that you're seeking some sort of final decision or making any kind of final application, which I guess you could have done if you'd wanted to. So uh, uh, two responses to that. The first is um, actually in the record, and I think this is uh, supplemental uh, excerpts of record nine, there actually is the words judicial review um, that made its way to the agency. Now, admittedly, this was a different uh, path than the letter that was submitted, but, they, but we did tell the agency uh, we, we need you to accommodate this. And if you're not going to, we're going to have to seek judicial review. So I, I do think that there was this, this was definitely contemplated. You're, you're, you're talking, you're talking about this email that starts great. Thanks so much. Should you, should the DEA take the erroneous position, et cetera? Uh, it would be a matter well worth taking up for judicial review. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, that's that's the first thing I would refer to in my response. But but what, what I would do, where I would go from there is uh, the process that actually unfolded here, which is that uh, petitioner submitted a letter on January fifteenth, had a phone call with the agency uh, with uh, John Purcell, who's a staff member. Then after that, um, there were two emails that followed up, and then we received a letter back, which wasn't from Mr. Purcell; it was from. Mr. Provoznik, who, and I think this is a very important fact. He is the, the official that the agency has delegated to make final determinations on this exact issue. And so when we're asking whether this court has uh, jurisdiction, this, this final agency action question, which is what I understand we're talking about, 
I think that we're going down the wrong path here. I think where we need to start is the text of the judicial review statute, which is Section 877. Well, I agree, and I want I wanted to ask you because I mean uh, uh, the APA. I mean we're pretty familiar with the APA on final uh, agency action, and you make the argument that final determinations, findings, and conclusions is broader than that. What case law do you have to support that? Because it, it looked to me like the D.C. Circuit, not with great uh, exhaustive analysis, but they seem to reject that argument. Well, I would start with the APA itself. 7062 list says that this court shall set aside agency action. And then right after that, it says conclusion. So, so the APA itself actually contemplates that a conclusion could be something broader than an agency action. Um, and what I would also point, point your honor. That to seems is- to hurt your case. I would think that you would want to say that final, uh, agency actions, are more limited. If it also includes conclusions, then doesn't that suggest that we can use a wholesale adoption of Benefits versus Spear and all the other cases that address final agency action? I I would disagree with that point, but I I was making the opposite point. I'm sorry if I I misspoke, but the fact that agency action is listed separate from conclusion in the APA contemplates that a conclusion could be simply a legal conclusion. And and, and that's... Could I just ask your your response to Judge Nelson? He asked if there was a case. I've also looked at the D.C. Circuit, John Doe case. Your answer is no. There there is only the D.C. Circuit case, and there's no case that supports your reading of 877. Is that the answer? Uh, There's there's the John Doe case, which is about a letter. Now, admittedly, that was in the context of a, a permit denial. Um, there's a Fifth Circuit case. I, I, I can't recall the citation, and I can provide it for the court, but where the Fifth Circuit held in, in multiple cases that uh, a notice of forfeiture, just a civil forfeiture notice, was subject to 877. This court in Ashcroft versus Oregon held that um, an interpretive rule, an interpretive rule, not a legislative rule, but an interpretive rule was subject to 877. The same, same result in the Hemp Industries Association case interpretive rule was subject to 877 so every time well, but an interpretive time, rule is still much broad i mean that also has a, a separate reviewable reviewability under the apa and that seems to be not what we're talking about here either I, you I, didn't I ask for an interpretive uh, rule you uh, asked for guidance we, we didn't ask for it but that's what we got and so when we're looking at what is reviewable <laughs> We got an interpretation of the controlled substance. Well, I agree. Act. If that's what you had gotten, the case might be different. <laughs> well, we, I, I would I would submit to the court that what we got was essentially the agency saying we don't have jurisdiction to entertain what what you are asking for, and that is equivalent in my mind. Are you are you aware of the it's uh, uh, the Woods versus DEA case from the Eastern District of Tennessee that relied on the DC Circuit? and explicitly held that there was, quote, no gap. It said, quote, no gap exists between final agency action under the APA and, quote, final determinations, findings, and conclusions under the CSA. So I I am aware of that. I would say that's contrary to the Supreme Court's uh, decision in Bowen versus Massachusetts at 903, where uh, the Supreme Court carefully discusses how the APA came about and how the general jurisdiction of final agency action was added to 704. And what it did was it supplemented uh, agency action made reviewable by statute. So if we're reading those two things to be the same thing, all of a sudden now 704 has this surplusage. And that's in Tom Clark's 1947 uh, memo as well. So this is crystal clear. So I I do think that court erred in 
saying that there's no gap between the two. It wouldn't be a textualist interpretation of the APA, and it wouldn't be consistent with the statutory history or Supreme Court precedent. And I do believe this is a very important point of law here, which is we shouldn't be starting with Bennett. We should be starting with the text of the statute. And the reason why is because of that, which is the general conference of final agency action jurisdiction was never meant to supplant. It was meant to supplement the specific judicial review statute when there is one. And that's important here for another reason. In Bennett, the two-part test, when we're talking about the consummation of a decision-making process, it's one case, the 1948 case. And what the Supreme Court did in that 1948 case, the Chicago Southern Airlines case, is it started with the text of that judicial review statute to determine if there was a consummation of a decision-making process. And that statute had presidential approval as the end of that process. Why is that important here? Because as we have identified, the official that rendered this letter and this conclusion, and I believe it has to be described as a conclusion, was the official that the agency delegated to make final determination. Let me ask a quick question before you run out of time. The letter and the language that you focus on in the letter says, DEA has no authority to waive any of the CSA's requirements pursuant to the RTT. And then it cites the RTT statute, which says it doesn't waive the requirements, which seems a reasonable interpretation of the RTT. And I didn't read your brief as arguing that the RTT doesn't, that the RTT does contain a waiver. I read your brief as saying you should look to 902. So did you raise to the DEA your 902 argument? Obviously not. Now that's just that we aren't raising that as an argument. We're raising that as a principle of statutory construction about the CSA. And I would respond, Your Honor, is that determination that the DEA made that absent an explicit statutory exception is completely contrary to what the Supreme Court said in UDV. But their specific language in the letter seems to be literally correct. Pursuant to the RTT, there's nothing in that statute that allows us to waive the CSA's requirements. That seemed to be correct. And I am over time, but I want to answer this question. But the point is, there doesn't need to be an explicit statutory exception in a different law to allow the agency to have authority. It doesn't have to exercise. You have an argument to make to a court, but you didn't make it to the DEA. But I'll let you save the rest of your time. And I think you wanted your co-counsel, Mr. Gonick, to speak. Did I pronounce that wrong? That is correct, Your Honor. And may it please the court, I am Washington Deputy Solicitor General Peter Gonick representing Amicus Washington State. Washington and the other government amici have two primary reasons for participating in this case. First, to uphold the policies expressed in their own state right to try laws, which are mirrored in the federal right to try law. And second, to highlight for this court the federalism concern that where possible, statutes should be construed to avoid federal interference with areas traditionally left to states, such as regulation of the medical profession here. These twin concerns should inform this court's analysis of the statutes and should resolve any ambiguities in favor of allowing states what the U.S. Supreme Court has called the great latitude they have as sovereigns to exercise their police powers for the health and welfare of their citizens. 
Uh, first, the policy and purpose of state right to try laws and the federal right to try law support the use of Schedule One controlled substances by patients suffering from life-threatening diseases or conditions. 41 states have passed right to try laws and the Washington legislature passed it by unanimous vote. The federal right to try law was similarly bipartisan and really the, the wildfire of passing this legislation across the nation and in Congress is, is almost unheard of how quickly uh, as a response of the Abigail Alliance uh, decision that these laws were passed. They express the recognition that uh, allowing patients who may not have time to wait for FDA approval to receive treatments, uh, treatments that have no currently accepted medical use as the drugs in Schedule One have been designated. Um, the average time uh, phase one to FDA approval is seven to 10 years in Congress and the 41 states determined that was just too long for some patients suffering life-threatening illnesses. So it is entirely consistent with the purpose and language of the state and federal right to try laws to include any controlled substances that have completed phase one trials, including schedule one substances, and that are currently being actively investigated. And it's entirely inconsistent with the right to try laws to prevent patient access to these treatments, merely because the drugs have not yet been determined to have an accepted medical use. Um, second, Allowing the DEA to prevent patient access to investigational drugs runs contrary to the principles of federalism. Uh, we'd ask that the court uh, look to the uh, Gonzalez versus Oregon case, and, and I, I want to uh, reserve the rest of my time so that uh, Mr. Zorn um, has sufficient time to rebut. All right. Thank you for your argument. Thank we'll you, Your Honor. From Mr. Pullum. Oh, you're on mute. You're still muted. I'm sorry about that. Um, thank you for uh, alerting me. Uh, good afternoon, and may it please the court, uh, Thomas Pullum for the respondents. Um, I'd like to start where the, the court focused its uh, questions because those go to the court's uh, jurisdiction here. Um, DEA offered advice on a narrow question. Um, what procedures were available to obtain access to a Schedule One controlled substance pursuant to the Right to Try Act? After explaining the plain text of that statute did not provide such access, DEA discussed two procedures that the petitioners had identified, including registration as a researcher. The agency did not, however, make any decision about whether an application under those procedures would be granted or denied. DEA's action is not subject to judicial review because it neither reflects the consummation of a decision-making process nor results in any legal consequences. It was an informal response to a request for assistance from a member of a regulated community that did nothing more than provide the agency's view on existing law. Can, can you and, explain why we should apply the APA um, to interpret Section 877 and, and use that two-prong test when 877 uses different language than the APA 704? It, it does use different language, but as the D.C. Circuit has held there's kind of no reason to um, treat them differently. Well, and, I, I uh, actually didn't read the DC circuit as a holding. It seemed to be more of a comment and it seemed to say, it seemed to say final. And I, I would agree as far as this goes, final as used there should mean the same thing as final, but it didn't really analyze determinations, findings and conclusions, which is the different is different language. 
Well, I, I think if anything, the DEA or the uh, 877, which uses more specific language, would be uh, narrower, um, as this court said in um, SCAP v. EPA, which was one of the cases uh, discussed in our 28J letter. Um, the court said agency action is a concept that covers comprehensively every manner in which an agency may exercise its power. So I, I think given the, the potential breadth of agency action there, where we have more specific language in um, uh, 877, if anything, that's going to be the, uh, the more narrow statu- uh, more narrow uh, scope here. Um, and when we look at this court's uh, uh, prior decisions, um, uh, finding jurisdiction under 877, including uh, uh, the uh, Ashcroft decision and Hemp Industries, the court first looked to whether there were um, uh, legal consequences um, that flowed from the uh, uh, from the decision. So I think that's a kind of analogous, um, a very similar uh, approach. In Ashcro- Oregon v. Ashcroft, the court said, well, the rule orders sanctions, so we have jurisdiction. Um, in hemp industries, the court said this is a legislative rule. Um, so it didn't indicate in its practice any difference uh, between the two statutes. So how and, could, and, the, how could, the, um, how could Ames get this up to us? It, it, would they have to apply for a researcher and then apply for an exemption? And if you allowed them to be a researcher but denied them an exemption... Would that issue then be a final determination or conclusion that they could appeal? Um, the denial of a, a registration would be uh, appealable um, in their brief. Um, is that what it's uh, called? Denial of a, reg- a registration is the application for an exemption from uh, criminal uh, prosecution. That, that's the researcher registration. That was the the. Uh, oh, but what, what if you granted the researcher registration? I guess then they wouldn't appeal that because so, don't would then, isn't they, it then they could proceed. Well, what about under the right to try law, though? Is there a way of applying for relief under the right to try law? Because apparently this company or Origin X or, or I can't remember the name has um, some ability to use this psilocybin. Um, is there a pathway where they could apply under the right to try act? And if, the company that has the permit authorizes them, um, and the the and there would be an enforcement action. I mean, what would be the pathway there? Um, there is no, um, as the the agency indicated in its letter, there's no procedure available under the Right to Try Act because the Right to Try Act does not provide the agency any authority to waive requirements of the um, Controlled Substances Act. In Right, I understand that that's the DEA's position, but say that um, some company under the um, gets uh, approval to have a phase one trial of psilocybin. I think the the letter um, indicates that there is a company that has that approval. The um, a, a person, a researcher, Dr. Agarwal, asks for um, ability to use that drug, I guess, to the company under the right to try law is given permission to use that. And then if the DEA takes an enforcement action, there would be some sort of appeal from that. Isn't that correct? Uh, that's right. I mean, certainly if the DEA took an enforcement action, um, the petitioners could raise their statutory argument there for why a, uh, 
the enforcement action is unlawful or contrary to the right to trust. Usually we don't, we but, usually we don't require a party to go and subject themselves to liability in order to appeal. So isn't the fact that 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 is likely to happen with, is that a potential to give them enough to have this issue presented to us at this point? So a pre-enforcement um, challenge, um, pre-enforcement or a declaratory relief action. No, it's not. And um, I can point your honor to some cases uh, we cited in our, our brief. Um, for example, the holistic candlers case out of the DC circuit involved a challenge to an FDA warning letter where um, FDA informed um, uh, the recipient that the products appeared to be adulterated and misbranded uh, medical devices. Um, DC circuit said the letters plainly don't mark the consummation of a decision-making process um, because they just communicated the agency's uh, position. Um, similarly, in Independent Equipment Dealers Association versus EPA, um, then Judge Roberts wrote the opinion for the D.C. Circuit in that case. A group wrote to the EPA seeking the agency's concurrence in its interpretation of an emissions regulation. Um, the agency did not concur. Um, it, the court nevertheless said the, the letter was purely informational in nature and had no binding effect. Um, so even when an agency expresses a view of law that's adverse to uh, uh, who it's informing, if that has no uh, legal consequence or does not impose its own... Uh, well, but it sounds like there might actually be some legal consequence here. If they, I mean, it is prohibiting them from doing what they want to do and it's subjecting them to enforcement action if they were to go forward. Well, the letter doesn't. The letter does not do that. The controlled well, substance is that. I understand. That. I mean, what I guess what I'm wondering is if this is a a, a problem with pleading. Like, could they? I, I mean, could they plead this differently? And then there would. I mean, they're relying on the letter, but if they just said, I mean, could they challenge? Could they challenge the the stat? I, I don't know how it would come up. Is there? Um, I understand that normally. Companies are very reluctant to issue, to um, participate in the right to try legislation and to to offer um, experimental drugs under that program. Um, as a practical matter, is is there a company that currently has phase one trials for psilocybin, and is there a history of of um, discussing right to try trials with with researchers? Um, so, uh, uh, there's a publicly available uh, website, clinicaltrials.gov, where um, uh, someone can search uh, available clinical trials. And if you type psilocybin in there, um, you will see that there are a number of clinical trials that uh, involve that. Um, the petitioners did first go to um, a company called USONA. Um, this is reflected in the email uh, exchange that uh, is in the supplemental excerpts of record and asked USONA, who is, uh, I, I believe, conducting some of those uh, clinical trials to provide the medication or to provide the drug. And USONA declined. At that point, um, uh, the petitioners approached organics um, and organics declined, uh, pointing to DEA regulations that, that prohibit this. Um, and I just want to make, uh, I'd like to make two kind of uh, fundamental points, one on the uh, agency action uh, point, which is, um, as the D.C. Circuit has said, 
there would be real consequences to permitting review of this type of informal advice letter. Um, agencies regularly give advice to members of the regular, regulated community, and these are kind of essential to helping people understand the law. Um, permitting judicial review of such informal communications would only discourage agencies from engaging in them. So and you, then said, with this- uh, you said that organics decline pointing to DEA guidance? No, no, pointing to um, uh, rules that uh, a, a, it cannot provide it's a uh, it cannot provide the drug uh, to someone who doesn't have an appropriate registration from DEA. The only type of um, so when Congress passed uh, the Controlled Substances Act, it designated psilocybin as a controlled uh, Schedule One controlled substance based on findings that the drug uh, had a high potential for abuse and no uh, uh, accepted medical use. Um, That determination made uh, psilocybin, in the Supreme Court's words, contraband for all purposes, except for one uh, exception, which is uh, research under the uh, uh, exception in 823F. So organics could not provide, um, as a distributor, it could not distribute the substance to anyone uh, consistent with its own registration and the Controlled Substances Act. Thank you. And if there are no further questions, we would ask that the petition be uh, dismissed for lack of jurisdiction or denied. No further questions, apparently. Uh, Mr. Zorn, you have a couple of minutes. Uh, thank you, Your Honor. Um, I want to make uh, a few quick points, and we'll see if I can get to them. But but the first is, uh, and there was a lot of discussion about pre-enforcement, and I certainly agree with all those points, but I want to be clear about what we're asking and why we're here. Um, The agency has said it has no authority to give us what we're asking for, which is a process to apply for a waiver and exemption to vindicate right to try use, which is very different from a research use. This is, by analogy, this would be equivalent if you filed a complaint in a district court and you got dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. You don't have any authority to handle the request. What would you do from there? You would not file another complaint making maybe a little more detailed allegations. You would take an appeal. What we're here today asking for is this court to vacate this decision and remand to DEA so that they can tell us what what the process is. It might be the same process that they use in uh, RIFRA, or or it could be something different. And that brings me to my second point, which is this conclusion, and it is a final conclusion by the person at the agency charged to make this conclusion, is contrary to UDV. And UDV involved the Religious Freedom for Restoration Act, different statutory history, different standard, compelling interest. But, But the point is, RIFRA doesn't contain an, uh, an explicit statutory exemption to the Controlled Substances Act. It's nowhere in the statute. And yet, uh, at OIRA right now, there are rules that DEA is putting forward to make exceptions to the Controlled Substances Act for religious use. So this, this conclusion in this letter can't be reconciled with UDV. My, my last point is um, the, the, the whether final agency action is different from agency action made reviewable by statute. The Controlled Substances Act was passed 24 years after the uh, APA was enacted. If final agency action included 877, there would be no need for an 877 because 704 would already cover everything. So 877 has to be broader. Thank you. Okay, the case of um, Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute versus Garland is submitted and we're adjourned for uh, this session. This court for this session stands adjourned.